Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, Anthony Molinero, who is part of the Rockstar team, and myself sit down with Anton Levaya, who is the head of information security at Ledin. If you're not familiar with Ledin, they're based out of Toronto. They're a Bitcoin bank. I want to call them a Bitcoin bank. I'm not sure if that's how they call the, themselves, but uh, they're probably doing some of the most interesting stuff in the Bitcoin space that I'm seeing right now. So definitely can check them out. It's Ledin is L-E-D-N. And Anton is the head of information security there, which must be rather intense. Today, we get into it all your personal security with more and more of us having more of our lives online some of the stuff that he shares might come across as basic initially but then when you hear why he's telling us or advising us to do the things he's saying it becomes pretty obvious that we all should so um wait to hear what, what we get into on this podcast the beginning half i would say is maybe some you know introductory stuff around digital security and then the second half of it is getting some advanced stuff and some of the stuff he has to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis and worry about and it's just fascinating and as this world extrapolates further with more and more commerce going online more and more money going online more and more artificial intelligence being involved in all of this the next 10 years is going to be rather interesting to say the least. So great chat. I think Anthony and Anton bumped into each other at a concert or something like that. That's how this kind of started. And maybe in Miami, I think it was in Miami. We talk about that on the podcast. So just grateful that Anton would take the time from his pretty intense daily role to come in here and talk to us. And if you are listening to this and you want to dive into some of the things that we do here at Rockstar, some of the best places you can start would be going to rockstarinnercircle.com. On that website, you can learn about the membership that we run. You can learn about the different real estate investment strategies that we're doing. You can learn about the introductory free training classes that we host. We also have links to other podcast episodes, YouTube videos, some of the free reports that we put out, free digital copies of our books. It's all on there. So you can go to rockstarinnercircle.com for all of that information. That's enough with the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. So we are live with Anthony Molinero uh, and Anton Levaya. And um, we were just talking about an area in Croatia called Pula, which is on the kind of, I guess it would be like, considered northern along the coast there of the Adriatic Sea? Yeah, it's northwest. Yeah. Northwest, yeah. yeah, thank you. And uh, my father, before he came to Canada, lived in Pula, and it was a guy there that helped him kind of decide. At that time, my father, I don't know if left or escaped is the right word. I don't know what the right word to describe that era of, of people leaving, yeah. but my father um, at that time had, a, I guess, kind of like a mentor to him. His family was more in the south, in Dalmatia there, just outside right. Split. Um, but this person said, hey, you know what? For you to have the future that I think you want, it's time for you to leave. And he climbed some hills or small mountainous area on the border. I think it was like now, now I think that area, Slovenia right. and Austria, yeah. climbed over there and declared refugee, refugee status in Austria. Then they put him in like a three or four story building for a few months wow. and said, uh, we don't want you. You, um, the church is going to pay for a ticket either to Australia or Canada on a boat that's going to leave through the northern part of Germany. That's and wild. You're out. <laughs> you're out of here. So you decide. We go back, and he didn't want to go back because that would have meant jail. And uh, he thought, okay, I'll go to Canada. It's closer to 
coming back to see his family. And that's how he ended up in Canada. And then he met our mom at Palais Royale on Lakeshore Boulevard that's in a, Toronto. That's and she, yeah, yeah, story. yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was here. For, she was from Scotland, but she took a plane. So he took a boat. She took a plane. They met here. Um, What's Palais he, Royale? It's a dance. It's like it was a dance club. I think it's still a club or something. But right on Lakeshore, um, just as you kind of enter really downtown Toronto, right off the Gardner there. I think the Boulevard Club, that tennis club is like right next door. And your dad could speak English? Did he learn when he got here? No, he learned when he got here. He worked at Canada Packers, like I think just lifting up the skins of animals as they kind of slaughter different animals. And uh, he hated it. He, he hated the food. He hated the life he had here. Couldn't speak to anyone. And uh, he didn't have enough money to get back home. So he stayed because he's like, if I had enough money to leave at that point, he would have went back. He just hated it. Wow. And then whatever. He stayed, met our mom and we exist. And now Anton's here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See how that, quite the chain how of ran, events. We all have to, just think of the chain of events that we all, you know, how lucky are all of us to just exist? Yeah, it's it's something that's easy to forget, right? It's pretty wild. And then your story, you came here when you were, yeah, can you explain when you, you were 13? Yeah, I was so, 13. So I was born in Zagreb, the main capital uh, of Croatia. And then um, my dad was a politician. So we actually moved here on a diplomatic mission. That's how we ended up here. And um, we stayed here and um, my family, actually now all of, all of my family members have moved back, but I'm, I'm here and married and, you know, staying for the foreseeable future. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. They all moved back. How long were they here for? It must have been like a decade. Yeah, yeah, about so? that. A long, quite, quite a while. And then, um, you know, my dad was the first one to go back. Uh, similar to your, your father here was, you know, I, he, di he didn't really like it here. For whatever yeah, yeah, reason, yeah, yeah. it's just like Croatians have this like very, uh, you know, spe specific way of life that they that they want to live. Uh, so he went back and then um, my mom was here for a long time. And then she also decided to go back because of family and, you know, her mother's getting old. Uh, could, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And how has the transition going back there been? I guess if they've only been here 10 years, that happens pretty fast. So has it yeah. been pretty seamless for them? Well, we've, we've been going back like pretty frequently. So it wasn't that big of a, um, a change. But the one thing that they tell me that they're pretty um, self-conscious about is just, you know, missing um, the, the shopping that you can do here. It's like pretty like it, it, you can't go into a mall and get whatever whatever you need. So that's like kind of a superficial complaint they have. But otherwise, they're really happy there. Um, my mom has a little hobby farm. She's a she loves horses, so she's kind of living the dream now. So she's thrilled, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a good change for her, definitely. Oh, awesome! Yeah. yeah, that's funny when you when you say that the second biggest city in the country is split, and there's like two malls. Like one is like okay, and then there's like the mall of split. Their big mall is it's called the mall of split, <laughs> and uh, you go into this mall, and it's kind of like uh, yeah, it is. It's a perfectly fine mall actually. It's gotten better over the last few years, but there's not ten malls. Right. You know, there's in the second biggest city in the country, there's what I would say there are two malls total, right. you know? Yeah, they've 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 developed a lot more malls in the last few years, but it's still like pretty like in its infancy compared to here. Like it's not. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because I feel like it just highlights how much of a consumption based or a consumer based economy we are in oh, North yeah. America. And it, you, you don't realize it until you like move and, and live somewhere else. I lived in, in Amsterdam for a year and a half as well. And, and that was like. That was one of the, the complaints I had that, you know, I want to buy something. It's like you have to find a specialized store or do like a special order. Um, and, you know, I felt pretty shallow about that. Like I'm not a shopper, but I'm a bit of a shopper, I think. <laughs> like, yeah. 
It's just, I think when you grow up a certain way, yeah, it just kind of, you, you don't realize until you talk to other people. Even when I see my cousin's wardrobes over there, they just have so much less clothes. Like they, they dress, I'm not going to sound weird, I guess, but like they dress fine. It's just like, they, they have like two pairs of jeans and like some top, like, it's not like a closet full of clothes. It just, right. it's a little more just, I don't know. More minimalist. Yeah. Totally. And I kind of like more simple living. Yeah. And, and I kind of like it. Yeah. You know, you realize that with all the stuff that you accumulate, and I think Anthony, you're big into minimalism now, right? For sure. Yeah. yeah. You just cool. feel lighter when you're trying to like get rid of stuff. Yeah. The stuff you own ends up owning you and you don't realize it, but it's, oh. you're taking care of the stuff. You're moving your stuff around. You're organizing your stuff. Like you're maintaining, just, you're maintaining right. the There's stuff. overhead attached to it. Yeah. yeah. You're buying new stuff to replace the old stuff. Right. It's just, you don't realize how much of your time it sucks up, but your time is the biggest asset you have in life. So it's, you just really, you got to realize the trade-off of owning that stuff is costing you more than you might realize at the surface level. Yeah. The weirdest things happening to me. I want like, I don't want a hundred pairs of shoes. I just want a few good quality pairs. I don't know, man. You've been uh, coming with a new pair of shoes. Like every week you got a new pair of sneakers. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unless you're trying to I find guess, the perfect pair and then you no, know, you're no, yeah, the sneaker, one. the sneaker game has changed over the last little bit. You're, you're right. I guess I'm just talking about like dress shoes and stuff. I'd rather not have like a 10 pairs of leather shoes. I just, oh, I'd rather have like one or two pair that are really good quality that serve all the purposes I need and I'm done with it. Yeah. But you're right. My, my, my sneaker game has changed a little bit in the last little bit. Uh, yeah. When it comes to clothes, I'm not a minimalist. I need to work on that. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, even the concept of like a walk-in closet isn't really a thing in Croatia or like other countries as much as it is here. Like here, everyone has a walk-in closet. It's like almost a must. Right? Here people sometimes take their fourth bedroom and turn the whole bedroom into a closet, <laughs> really? right? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, totally. That happens all the time. Wow. We can, we can introduce you to a few people that we know that do that on sure. many properties. <laughs> Um, but Anton, so like how can you walk us through, I think this started because we, we were going to talk about cybersecurity, mm -hmm. um, which we're interested in, but can you tell us a little bit of your, your journey or Anthony, what were you thinking on how to get us into that discussion? Sure. Well, so I, Anton and myself met, uh, we were having some drinks before the last day of the Bitcoin conference because there was a dead mouse concert. There was, I think Steve Aoki played. There's a few musicians. Yeah, playing. Logic, Logic, and, and Dead Mouse were playing simultaneously. One, uh, the the outside stage, and Dead Mouse was inside. And I'm a huge Dead Mouse fan, so I was like, we need to go in. We need to go listen to Dead Mouse. <laughs> yeah. So I was hanging out with Anton and the Leaden team, uh, who Anton is the head of information security. Yep. Basically, head of cybersecurity for Leaden. Yep. Which right. is a Bitcoin lending institution, and uh, so I'm hanging out with the with the Leaden team because I'm with Connor Eagleson. Um, I thought you were going to say because they had free drink tickets. And because they okay. had free drink tickets. <laughs> okay, let's just so, cut to the chase. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting some free beers. I started talking to Anton. Anton's like a pro with cybersecurity. I started asking him, like, how can I personally protect myself? And just from that quick conversation, it was like a whole new world, all these things I've never thought of. And I just felt so unprotected <laughs> walking away from that conversation. Anton ended up emailing me this huge uh, resource with all these different aspects from computers to phones to email to web browsing, how you can protect yourself. And I just thought it'd be great to have Anton on to maybe talk to the average person like myself or whoever's listening about how they could protect themselves. So, um, yeah, let's, so let's dive into that. And then I, I do want to bug you about what you've done at Latin and how that's evolved and what you're doing there sure. in the future and what your thoughts are around that area. But yeah, how, how, how would you explain to someone what would be the basic steps somebody could take to start protecting themselves from like, you know, any cyber threats or what are we not thinking of that we should be thinking of? How do you explain this to people? Right. 
Yeah, so it's um, it's a very wide topic, right? There's like a lot of things, a lot of little things that need to kind of be um, done right to in order to re reach like a reasonable uh, security level. And um, uh, there's, I think the best way we can talk about it is to kind of break it down into you know a few major categories. I've tried, I've thought about you know what would be good to talk about um, on the podcast and. Uh, um, you know, we could start, let's start with passwords, for example, right? That That's like a really common one and one of the basic tenets of security. A password is just a secret word that protects access to something, right? And um, the thing is most, most users don't have good passwords uh, and don't have a good management system for, for passwords. So the, the primary recommendation that I make to most people is to use a, a password manager. And the reason you want to do that is because there's this family of attacks called credential stuffing attacks. And the way they work is that, um, you know, a typical user will have a hundred or several hundred different accounts on different services. And if they reuse their password, if one of those services... Nobody does that here. Yeah, yeah. No, one, no one reuses passwords. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, and and if, so if you reuse the, your password and one of them leaks, then what um, threat actors will do, and I refer to them as threat actors because hackers are like to reserve for, for good guys, like... A hacker is a very cool term that I don't want to have the bad guys like take over. So the threat actors uh, will take the credentials from one leak and then use automated scripts to try those credentials against different services. And so in an automated way, you know, let's say in LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn had a leak in 2016, the leaked like 160 million passwords. And so threat actors would get their hands on this and then feed it to their scripts. It would go and try the credentials that leaked from LinkedIn against uh, Facebook, Google, like Gmail accounts, like every possible service you can think of in an automated way. And then at the end, if it found some hits and it got into different services, it, it would let the hacker know. So this is, this is like one of the primary things I, I like to mention first is that passwords need to be unique. And the easiest way to do that is to use a password manager. So there's a lot of them on the market. There's like one password, Dashlane, LastPass. Some of them are free, some are you know a few dollars a month, but they allow you to easily manage your passwords and have very long passwords that are complex and you don't have to remember them. All you need to remember is the main password to get into your password manager and then your password manager will prov provide. Uh, uh, go ahead, Anthony. You know how websites will recommend uh, a password and it's like the long chain, like yeah. super, super secure password. Yeah. Is there any threat to using what they recommend? Some pattern that a threat actor could pick up? Um, or are those generally safe to use? Yeah, like if, if you use uh, any of, of the kind of widely used password managers, you can trust their password generator. Uh, they, they've done a lot of work around having a reasonable level of like entropy, which is randomness in their passwords. If, if you're truly paranoid and you want to go even a step beyond that, you could go and use your terminal to, to generate a password using like a command line tool. So there's uh, maybe afterwards I can share a command with you, but you could, you know, on your Mac right now, open your terminal and use what's called OpenSSL. It's like a cryptographic library to generate a password on your computer. And like that library has been audited and verified to you know generate uh, secure passwords. How do you open a terminal on a Mac? Uh, you can use your spotlight. So you can just go command space and type in terminal. And enter, it opens? And it'll open it. Okay. And in there you can, it's basically just a programmatic way to interact with your computer. It is, it is typically more advanced users use it, but if I give you a command, you need to be sure that it's not a malicious command. Um, but if you run it, you know, you can do a number of things. You can go and like, of course, traverse your computer and look at files, look at folders, but you can also use different utility tools. So you could write a JavaScript 
script and then actually execute it. You could use OpenSSL to generate a password or a cryptographic key um, and so on. So if you use one of these password managers, because I use one, I'm not sure I should even say on the podcast which one I use. Yeah, you don't now, have now, I'm, now I'm thinking, holy yeah, yeah. shit, how much am I revealing here? But anyway, I use one of those. Um, I'm always worried that like, even though I'm using it, the main password for that password protector software, I mean, that one has to be super yes. secure. Yes. It has so, to be cause that's my password. single point of failure, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. And, and have, uh, is there a history of any of these password managers getting hacked? Uh, there was a breach recently. LastPass had, um, um, an incident, but mm, client information wasn't leaked. It was more that, uh, one of their developers got compromised and then, you know, it could have been a lot worse, but they were able to so in general they've been pretty safe. they've been pretty good like okay. it's it's definitely better to use a password manager than not unless okay. unless like it's it's always about what you're protecting like what's your risk profile if if we're talking about you know protecting crypto your risk profile is higher so you would apply a different set of principles like you would go you would go further right so um well we can we can touch more on that um later but just to go back to the password thing you were saying you want to have a really strong password that protects your password. And is it okay for right? me to use these password protectors as a plugin to one of my browsers so that they're yeah. really easily used? Yep. And does it matter which browser I'm using? Um, that's, yeah, that, that's, I mean, it, it changes fairly quickly. Um, most browsers have vulnerabilities that are, you know, zero day vulnerabilities that are continually being patched. So I, if I had to recommend a browser I probably rec just recommend Chrome because they have a really large and strong security team, so they're constantly really? trying okay. to find. Really? Okay. I thought you were going to say anything but Chrome, but yeah. that's good to it's, hear. It's 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 really it's really a you know people are going to chastise me afterwards for for making recommendations, but um, it's really hard. Like all of them are susceptible to zero day vulnerabilities, and the reason they are is because they use uh, what's called the V8 JavaScript engine, and it's a it's a very um, complex piece of software and so the more complex something is the harder it is to secure so a browser is supposed to be what's called a sandbox so it's supposed to be like completely isolated from the rest of your system but unfortunately because of the v8 javascript engine being so complex there are actually ways to use that to break out of the sandbox so what that means is i, I recently wrote a little blog about this but if you click on a link that's actually enough to be compromised and have your operating system get infected um, by malware so it's really there is no like perfect browser uh the best browser is the one that gets patches most frequently or a browser that's extremely uh um simple so there's i forgot the name of it but i think it's like cute browser it has very minimal functionality another thing that you can do is actually turn off javascript in your browser and for most users for day-to-day -day, like that doesn't make sense mm -hmm. you can't really use the internet that way but let's say you have a bunch of crypto accounts uh, cryptocurrency accounts like my, maybe like uh, Binance and Kraken and Coinbase and whatever it is, um, you might want to go as far as having a separate computer that you use when you visit these sites. With JavaScript turned off? Yes. In the browser, you turn off the J JavaScript and um, you also don't install anything on that computer because any application that you add to your system could be a potential vector for an attack. So, what about adding to such a computer desktop software for a hardware wallet? Yeah, that would be a good use case for that, right? So you okay, so but that is additional software on yeah. the laptop, but because it's a separate laptop with JavaScript turned off on you're the browser. Keeping it, yeah, you're keeping it minimal, right? So that's the idea. Like anything that you only keep it to the bare minimum of what you need. 
and in a lot of cases you you don't need to go that far but crypto is one use case where you might want to go that far especially if you're holding a lot of crypto right because what could happen so I feel like it's, you're going to just scare the shit out of us right now. But anyway, well, tell us. Yeah, there's a lot of different different things that can happen, but uh, most attacks start with social engineering, right? So that's one thing. So either a phishing email or it'll be like vishing, so voice-based uh, phishing or smishing, so an SMS. Um, smishing? Smishing. Smishing. <laughs> <laughs> Holy, I'm out of what, touch. What is what phishing is? like defined? Uh, phishing is just uh, it's a t- subtype of social engineering attacks where you get somebody to do something that they shouldn't that, that will divulge information or, or give access to someone that shouldn't have it right so, so just, somebody it's a type sen- of like manipulation so somebody sends you a tricky email to click their link and then what could possibly happen in that crypto example right so like to my earlier example just clicking a link you could actually end up with malware on your computer that can that could then exfiltrate information from your computer and send it somewhere else. So for example, if you have a private key for your crypto stored locally or passwords in plain text or any number of things like that, even session tokens from your browser. So when you log into a site, your it's browser- Saving have, the password? Well, it, it actually, once you, once you the passwords too, but once you um, authenticate against the site, there's this thing called the session token. And so every time you talk to the website, you submit that with your request to prove that you've successfully authenticated. So that could be exfiltrated by this malware and sent. Holy shit. So it's, it's, um, there's, there's, you can assume that like malware, if, if you're infected with it, can do anything that you could do on your computer. Right. And sorry, what's malware defined? So malware is just a um, piece of software. Like viruses would be a subtype of malware. Viruses are malware that's designed to kind of spread like a biological virus but malware is just a more broad kind of term for any type of software that has malicious intent and some of it is adware you'll get those pop-ups on your screen Uh, some of it is uh, there's different types of malware some is less sophisticated some is more sophisticated the ones that you need to be worried about are the ones that you're not even aware of right and um, often these are developed by state-funded actors and they're extremely sophisticated. So if you try to look for them, they'll hide. Uh, most antivirus and anti-malware uh, systems won't be able to detect them uh, because they develop them in an environment that's full of antivirus and anti-malware software and make sure that they're not detectable. So these are called like novel or novel ma- malware. Um, and so antivirus and anti-malware systems usually only recognize the ones that have already been found before and we've trained the system to recognize them, right? So the novel malware, Not like the vaccine the t- for the ones that have been discovered already. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So um, have you read that? I, I read this book over the summer. Uh, what was the title? This is how this is how they tell me the world is going to end. Have you heard of this book? No. And it's somebody who just goes into the depths of cyber espionage and cybersecurity, talking about how other sovereign, you know, different countries will infiltrate manufacturing of laptops and hardware devices and actually insert their virus or insert back doors. You would know better than me. Oh yeah. yeah. Insert back doors into laptops that we all buy at the point at the, yeah, yeah. They were at the point of manufacture. So it doesn't matter really what you have on the laptop. They have a backdoor entry because they're literally putting this into the, I don't know if it's the firmware or exactly what's happening embedded into the hardware at point of manufacture. Absolutely. And that, that whole uh, family of attacks is called, um, hardware supply chain security. So it can go as far as like the foundry that creates the chip 
uh, you know, when they're creating the chip, they will insert a wafer, like a layer that's, you know, 0.1 millimeters. So you can't, you can't detect that uh, very easily. You could with equipment that's very expensive. And often in the process of trying to figure out if there is some sort of malicious piece of hardware in a computer, you destroy it. So you end up with no computer at the end. So even if you successfully found it, you've wrecked your hardware. But that is a huge um, issue because most of our hardware is manufactured in China. Uh, and these Taiwan, are the examples right? that they were giving about like routers, cell phone routers. Uh, it was laptops, but it was also things like the control p panels for like elevators. Sure. And how they can control an elevator remotely because they have back doors into the circuitry or the chips that are controlling these elevators. Yep. Um, and I just thought, oh, after reading that book, I put it down and I'm like, is there even any hope for me trying to secure my cyber, yeah. my cyber <laughs> identification? Like, because like, I feel like it's like, it's over. Point? Yeah. You know, yeah, that's, that's the thing. It goes like super deep and there are all these layers, like to your point, if you get the software, right, you know, and the operating system, right. But you didn't get the hardware, right. I could, maybe it's not enough, but that's why we have to try to measure like what's the perceived risk versus how far we're willing to go to protect it. So, you know, the U S military has underground bases that are in Faraday cages and they use hardware that they manufactured using FPGA chips and responsibly sourced hardware to mitigate that risk. So it's like, if you, if you think it's worthwhile to do it, then you can go and do something about it. But for most of us, it's like, uh, you know, you get a hardware wallet for your crypto, you get a separate computer. And then, you know, if you're a crypto holder, that might be enough to really like get comfortable. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really like there is no, nothing's unhackable. That's the thing. Okay. So for most of us, password protector is a good place to start on yeah. passwords. Is there another category of thing that, that comes to your attention or that you think about that most people should be doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just one tip on how to make a good password. So a good password should be about 16 characters at least or longer. And um, usually you refer to these as passphrases and um, you should have one for your computer for logging in and then one to protect your password manager. Um, and the way you can construct, construct one is just think of random words that have nothing to do with you as a person or something that's well known. So for example, I'm looking around this office and I see like bright light. So it might be bright light, but I will put a few special symbols in there, like a ampersand and a number. And then I'll say, okay, um, you know, chalk, uh, house, um, window and then i'll capitalize some of the characters add some special symbols so it's a it'll it'll end up constructing a very complex password that's hard to guess but it's easy easy for you to remember because you you have some symbols that you can kind of imagine you were also through. telling me in miami no patterns to your passwords at all completely separate nothing kind of tying anything together no theme nothing yeah exactly so that that's um that's that kind of ties into our earlier um, conversation about like reusing the password. Uh, oftentimes I, t I talk to people about passwords and they say, oh, I have a system. I, I like I remember all my passwords because I use like a main password and then based on the service modify it. But the problem is if there's a pattern that you know that you recognize, the hacker can figure out the pattern as well. And the way they would do that is it might be enough to just look at one password and deduce like how it was constructed or more easily if there are multiple breaches that have your passwords from different sources and they're slightly different, then it becomes even easier to figure out what the pattern is. And so what you really want is truly random passwords that are generated using a password manager 
or, or your terminal. So I, I can coach you on how to use your terminal okay, later. So, so what's, <laughs> uh, what's next? So now passwords, I know there's probably, we could talk endlessly now about yeah. passwords, but what would be another thing? Yeah, I think, I think we did a good job with passwords. Uh, the other absolutely essential um, protection mechanism is 2FA or MFA. So mm -hmm. a second factor in addition to a password, and there's a lot of different types, and that topic also goes very deep. Um, but maybe we can talk briefly about a few. So uh, SMS, like text message-based uh, MFA, should be avoided uh, because it's susceptible to uh, SIM swapping attacks. So basically, and this is a pretty like crazy um, space, but there's a lot of threat actors that built an economy around porting people's numbers. So the whole industry, there's like an industry around getting people's numbers ported to a different phone. So like, for example, if I have your credentials to log into Binance, I keep using that as an example, um, but I don't have your phone number, there's actually a, a market on the, you know, a dark market where you can go and pay somebody to port the number for you. And there's a whole network of people that kind of participate in this. There's insiders and telecom companies that get bribed. There's individuals that go and steal iPads from telecom stores that have the ability to port numbers. There will literally be a guy running into a store, yanking an iPad out of a manager's, you know, desk or their hands, running out to a van where some guy's ready with a laptop, plugging it in and working through a list of orders to port numbers. This is happening in North yes. America? This is like hap happening globally. There's an episode on uh, Darknet Diaries that where there's a guy who was like a part of this community that talks about it. It's episode 112. What's Darknet Diaries? That's a it's, a it's a really cool podcast about uh, cybersecurity. They have a lot of really interesting episodes. This one covers um, touch. I don't I don't remember everything on the episode, but that was one of the topics they covered. It was really cool. It was one of my favorite episodes. Okay, so not um, text message ideally. What, yeah, what would if, be if the there ideal? isn't another option, then it's better than nothing. It, it's good. Um, there's there's also sometimes you can download an app for a service that pushes notifications to you and you have to like press the notification. It's like Google Authenticator. Yeah, uh, Google Authenticator would be slightly different. That's that's like time based one time password. That's just like a code that changes every 30 seconds. But I'm talking about it'll just be like a push notification and you press it and then you've like authenticated. That one is OK, but the problem is that it's susceptible to uh, MFA bombing where an attacker will just like keep sending a request to approve and then you might inadvertently mm -hmm. like press it. So that's something like when you get a no notification from Gmail or Google saying, hey, your device has been opened or something yeah. and logging in from a different yeah. IP, do you approve this? Exactly. And you get that push notification. Exactly. And there's a lot of services that have like their own proprietary app that you download and then you would just go and like get a little approval request. But the thing is anyone can initiate that request. Mm -hmm. So if I'm trying to hack you, right? Um, I have your username and password, but I don't have the MFA. I'll just keep requesting it until you're like, yeah, oh, somebody's in a meeting, gets annoyed. Yeah, and like shit. Exactly. Okay, or you, yeah. So that, that's like, it's, it's better than SMS. Uh, you just have to be cautious of that type of attack. And then there's been a slew of attacks of that nature recently. Um, and then we have, a uh, apps like Google authenticator. So this is a protocol called TOTP or time-based one-time password. And there's a lot of apps that support this protocol. It's not just Google Authenticator. There's mm -hmm. Authy and Yubico Authenticator. And this is one of the better types of MFA that I recommend. Um, basically, the way it works is that you have a just a code, a six-digit um, code that changes every 30 seconds. And so you just enter it after you've entered your password and you've authenticated. And even though that one's from Google, you think it's, a, I always think anything from Google is just like, oh, this is not good. 
but th it's it's okay that Google Authenticator. Yeah, it's okay. Um, I I mean, there's there's better ones like um, Ubico Authenticator, for example, allows you to store your secrets on a little hardware security module that's kind of like a hardware wallet for crypto. But this hmm. this little device allows you to do TOTP and a number of other protocols as well. And the the other cool thing is that if you're really paranoid about you know. I, I, wa I wasn't, but you're making it. So keep going. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. Five minutes yeah, great. after speaking great. to Anton, I, I, I was yeah. like, I'm done. Yeah. Holy shit. Okay, yes. Um, but the cool thing about this protocol is that you can actually do it offline. So if you wanted to, you could take an old phone, install Google Authenticator on it, and just flip it into airplane mode, and then use that to generate your codes. And so you're, it's a completely air-gapped device. Like, it's fully offline. So even if something is wrong with it, uh, you know, if there's some sort of malware or backdoor, you're fine because it's not connected to the internet. So that's that's one of the nice parts about TOTP. A lot of times you're just locked into what the service you're using offers. So if you're using some kind of like Canadian online banking, they might offer two-factor authentication and that's it. Or they might offer Google Authenticator as a step better, but that's it. Yeah. Some of these other authenticators you, you just can't use, correct? Um, Wherever you can use Google Authenticator, you can use other Oh, you uh, can. Authenticator For whatever yeah, reason, I always thought it it said Google Authenticator, but I guess I was wrong. They've kind of gained a mon monopoly on, on that, and I'm really annoyed by it because it's 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 TOTP. Like, that's the okay. name of it. Okay, and so it's a standard. Yeah, it's a, it's a protocol. protocol. And, and I've actually built an app that's basically a clone of Google Authenticator that does the same thing. Sorry, why have you built an app? But we should have started with this. What's your background? Like, this is something you've done since you were, like, you know, a kid? Uh, took, I mean, you, how do you know all this shit? <laughs> I don't know. I just spent, I, I guess I'm a nerd. I spent a lot of time on this. It's really fun. Um, I, um, I wasn't always like in, in tech. I actually studied English literature and then, okay. and then after, uh, my degree, like I was always interested in math and like, I did get pretty early exposure to computers. I think I have a picture of me like playing on an Atari when I was like three years old or something like that. Um, but after, uh, university, like my English degree wasn't really, you know, landing me jobs. And then my friend got me a, a gig at the startup and I was doing sales, like business development. And a lot of my job was like really, um, you know, repetitive, tedious type of like go online and search for stuff. So I started writing scripts to automate my work. And that's the thing that really like set me down the path of like figuring out how software works, how to write software and with it security. So you're, so you're self-taught in this area. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, just super passionate about it. Like I've just and and I've been lucky. I've been very fortunate that I met a lot of people that are like very, um, you know, giving with their time. And we're the the community around tech is very very nice. Like people are they want to share knowledge. It's just on like, the technical side. I yeah, would say. I, I kind of played a little bit on the technical side. Yeah, and then on the sales side. And the sales side, it can no. completely cutthroat. Totally. But on the technical side, I have to admit, it always felt uh like you could get answers and people would share information yeah it people, really cool it's actually hard to find people that like want the download so like there are a lot of people out there they're just waiting to dump their knowledge on someone so i was like i was that guy i was ready i was like a sponge like just like give it to me so um yeah that's that's kind of i was always i, I was looking back through my twitter and i saw that i was always posting stuff about security but the thing that really got me deep into it was when i um where I actually, I worked for Vitalik's dad for a while. 
Oh, did you? Yeah. In, Tor- in Toronto? Yeah. Okay. It, it was a company called Wild Apricot that's been um, acquired by... Um, I feel like I'm, I've heard the name. Okay. Yeah. They got they got acquired. Um, but anyways, I, I was working for him. And so I met Vitalik and found out about Ethereum. And so when I started learning about like how to write smart contracts and crypto, that's when I really like realized, okay, security is like essential. Like I need to really understand how this stuff works in order to be able to adequately protect Because at that point, you, you realized if you're putting a smart contract together, if someone get it, gets access to this, it's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And it's what, like, what's a smart contract? Can you just talk about that for everyone? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it just a piece of software that gets executed in a distributed manner. So you kind of like float the code out onto the blockchain and then the protocol of the blockchain ensures that it's executed the way it's written. But the problem is if you don't write it well, then it's out there for anyone to to break. And that's we've seen that happening a lot in DeFi. That's why we have a lot of hacks because people are rushing to kind of seize the opportunity that we can find in DeFi without doing the work around actually verifying that their software is secure and does what it's supposed to. Um, so that that's like that's where a lot of hacks are is, coming in, from. In your opinion, because you're going to be much better to answer this than me, than me is, is, is DeFi, from what I see, is it really decentralized? I feel like... Like I listen, this is coming just from like, and I've been out of tech so long. Like I was at Oracle, I was in tech-supported Oracle, so I was at a database company. Yeah, and uh, I guess just from what I see on DeFi, a lot of the protocols don't seem decentralized to me almost at all. Like yeah. I, guess, I, I guess my frame of reference is coming from a database company where I saw a database could be a, a you know. Actually, you could make a distributed database where it would have failovers and, and have, you know, multiple nodes kind of running and, and all that bit. So when I saw that and then I see DeFi and then I see Bitcoin, I just I feel like it's all confusing to me because I feel like when I see Bitcoin, I feel like, oh, that looks pretty decentralized to me. Like we're running a node right here, right? Uh, you know, on the desk, $180, maybe $200 worth of hardware. Yeah. Uh, my old tech skills were basic enough, that, but that was easy for me to get going and not hard. Yeah. And then I see some of this other stuff in DeFi with these, you would know the language better than me, and it doesn't feel too decentralized. Am I, am I, am I wrong? No, no. Um, so, I mean, a system is only as decentralized as it's, you know, least decentralized point right so uh, a lot of like bitcoin is a good example of something that's like truly decentralized and in blockchains architecturally you kind of pull you 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 have three kind of points you're trading against so it's like security bandwidth um and decentralization and so there are a lot of projects that are trying to make their blockchains faster because it's one of the primary complaints that there's not enough throughput so they often they don't want to sacrifice security um so they sacrifice decentralization Decentralization. that's what it feels like to me for sure they're centralizing in the term because that's what we would do with database technology if you really wanted the fastest one yeah you would kind of put all your horsepower on one big server yeah now it's distributed but it would be like a central computing unit or or multiple cpus tied together all working and processing the requests at one centralized point yep for sure and it's it's like um solana is a good example of of a blockchain that's kind of their nodes are very difficult to run as an individual because their requirements are so high right like it's really you need like i don't know 64 gigs of ram so i'm just talking off the top of my head (laughs) sure exactly but it's not an average user can't run a node so there are fewer nodes but they're more powerful and that allows you to run the chain faster. But yeah, it's less nodes, so it's less decentralized. And and the other thing is, 
if you're building some sort of DeFi protocol on top of Ethereum, let's say, um, the way you implement your smart contracts matters because if there's a single person that controls the private keys that control those smart contracts, then that's the single point of failure. Like it's only as decentralized as that the human. least decentralized <laughs> point. Yeah. So um, those are the things to kind of look for. And um, yeah, like we don't, you know, DAOs are supposed to be like decentralized autonomous organizations are supposed to be uh, kind of uh, an upgrade from that where it's really instead of an individual, the DAO really makes more of the decisions, but that's in its infancy and we're not really, you know, leveraging that. So a lot of the DeFi projects do have single points of failure. Yeah. I feel like that now we're, I want to come back to security. I feel like we have taken us on a tangent here, but the, that's interesting what you said about DAOs, distributed autonomous organizations, because I feel like that's kind of interesting. Like I could see that evolving 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now where you could have this weird autonomous thing that lives on a decentralized, a legitimately decentralized thing. Like I'm going to use Bitcoin because I, I love Bitcoin. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, maybe on a, on a layer on top of Bitcoin or, or, or somehow, like I know, I don't know all the developments on the Lightning Network now, but maybe there's something that kind of operates on a layer on top of Bitcoin. And I just feel like that's kind of interesting Absolutely. that you could have this organization, this autonomous thing that's kind of like alive, but running in the digital world or digital universe. It's, it's great. I think there are a lot of use cases and, um, you know, in the example of like a single point of failure of one person controlling the private keys, you could potentially create a system where you give the key to the DAO, right? So this like software basically holds the key and then you implement some sort of layer that requires multiple individuals to give the DAO the command to go and do something with that key. So now you've eliminated the single point of failure. Another word for this is M of N authentication. So you say there are, you know, 500 people that can kind of give the go ahead and you need at least a hundred out of those 500 people to give it a go ahead, right? It, it, it's an arbitrary number, but that's, I think we're going to see like more of that. And that's a pretty common tactic to remove single points of failure. You want anything of, of consequence that's sensitive. You want, you don't want to have a single point of failure. Imagine you have a DAO that gets some monetary value that can then hire people in the physical world to buy apartment buildings or rental properties. And you have this organization that is living on the internet, controlled you know, in a decentralized fashion by people all around the world that have to have like 100 out of the 500 voting. And one of the votes is, should we buy you know, a hundred rental properties and rent them out for X number of dollars. And you have this world where a decentralized organization can make things happen in the physical reality. Yeah. Because then if they have a monetary unit and let's call it Bitcoin for, for a sure. second. Love that, the Bitcoin. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sorry. I'm always going to default back to Bitcoin. No, please do. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, um, it, it, that, that people are using as a monetary kind of unit of exchange it's kind of freaky where this world goes to like the, yeah. the evolution of just nation states in that world to me starts to completely crumble. Yeah. Because why, what are we, you're now not protecting physical borders. Although I guess a judicial system is required to make people move in or out of a house and enforce that's, some of that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, that, That's usually any, even with NFTs, like the legal infrastructure that back yeah, is really need, important. Yeah. You need that, but I just mean the nation state border or what we've thought of as 
war could easily change to less in the physical realm and more in the digital realm because that's where a lot of the value is held. Yeah, absolutely. If, if that makes sense. I know I'm way off. Here. No, I, I, think, I think I think that's like one of the big potentials of the technology and what people are trying to do with it, right? It just uh, So it, you, you can see that type of evolution. Yeah, it's in its infancy, but like the, the common idea is like, let's re- recreate Uber, but as a DAO, right? And then and then like all the, the game theory around that is very interesting and like very complex because yeah, there's actual like value at stake and there are different actors that have different motives. So like, how do you create a system that's like, going to defend itself and and have longevity um yeah i, I don't think we're there yet but i, I yeah i think it's a, i think it's a ways off for yeah. sure but i could just see the point of i guess maybe it's it's attack vectors or the points of attack used to be in the world always a physical thing whereas now it just seems like it's transitioning to more and more in a digital realm and now that there's a monetary property that is of value in that digital realm more and more. Like if you go back in the day, like, and, and you know, people wanted to take over a kingdom because they wanted to get access to their gold. So it was like physically taking over that kingdom, maybe taking over the judicial rights of that territory and getting access to the gold. It was all, it was all physical. Right. Whereas we never had like this monetary unit of account that was like in the digital world. But if we're evolving to that state where we looks like, we're headed in that direction, then the the kind of attack vectors are where people were going to, you know, project power and force. It's going to be more and more in the digital world. For sure. I think it, it doesn't eliminate the physical. Yeah, there, yeah. There's an importance like this tandem that works together now. It's really weird. Totally weird. And we're digitizing more and more stuff. So there's more stuff to try to compromise, right? Or attack. Like if, if you look at North Korea, um, 20% of their GDP is... is uh, hacking crypto companies what? <laughs> what yeah can you repeat that 20 percent of north korea's gdp is is comes from hacking uh companies crypto companies like so all this stealing so, so all they're and, and then they're hacking getting getting whatever crypto they get selling it and raising funds for north korea yeah 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 it's a state-funded hacking and that's like the most dangerous type of hacking um because they're well-funded they have huge teams. They're extremely patient. They have very long-term plans. This is the most dangerous type of actor that will actually go and go as far as putting a compromised router in your office, um, you know, or really going to any length to to compromise you, right? So, I mean, North Korea probably does most of their attacks remotely through malware and social engineering, but uh, yeah, that that's. Yeah. Sorry, what? What's social engineering? So social engineering are just basically manipulating someone into doing something oh, got they shouldn't it. Okay. do. That that will result in them divulging information or giving access mm-hmm. that that you know they shouldn't have. Okay, if we circle back to security, sorry, Anthony, you've mapped out. I know we're yeah. all over the well, map. Well, no, here. it's it's good to kind of lay out the framework that we're all like the world's becoming more and more digitized, and just like we have locks on our doors or you know, maybe carry weapons in some parts of the world to defend ourselves. You know, how can we defend ourselves in this new digital realm? Um, so email, what about, uh, yeah, email providers? Yeah, um, so email uh, is is really an, an not a very secure technology, but we use it a lot. Um, email is a very important one to protect adequately because you can use it to recover access to like most of your accounts, right? So that's why it's important to have both a strong password and um MFA on it. And I've, I've heard a lot about Proton Mail. Yeah. Why do people like using that? Um, it, it has some additional layers of, of encryption, um, but it isn't um, end-to-end encrypted. It just, um, they, they 
I think they layer encryption uh, on their end. So it, it does add a little bit of assurance, but it's not, it's not really anything um, too major. They are a privacy focused company as well, which is pretty reassuring. Um, I use ProtonMail, I have a ProtonMail account, I have a Gmail account as well. Um, but the, the thing that's really important for an email account is to use a type of MFA we didn't cover, that's the best type, uh, and it's a security um, key-based MFA. So I actually have one around my neck. Um, Holy shit. Who are we dealing with over here? So yeah. <laughs> I left Miami feeling so vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm listening to this. So th this is kind of like a, a crypto hardware wallet, except okay. it can be used for MFA. And, and actually, a lot of crypto wallets can be used as this type okay. of MFA. So what we're looking at, if you're listening to this, it looks like a small USB key to me. Yeah, this is a USB-C. They have different kinds. And there's also uh, Titan key, which was made by Google. You can use Trezor, you can use Nano Ledger. They all support, the protocol is called FIDO. Um, there's, it's a little bit confusing because there, there's a lot of different names for it, but usually it's referred to as a secret, uh, um, sorry, hardware or security key uh, MFA. And, and this is the most secure type of MFA that you can get. And it's uh, phishing resistant, which is wonderful. Like there's no other type. So of how do you use this thing when you log into Gmail? Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to constantly use it. Like you can have your session last for a while. So only if you're logging in from a new device or after, you know, a long period of time, you have to reauthenticate. But it's pretty simple. Same thing as usually you would provide your email and password. And then there's just a pop up that says, please tap your key. And you plug in your key and you, there's a little there are little buttons on the side. You can just tap them and um, that's it. And then you're in and it's phishing resistant, which is this is the but only what happens if I lose that little USB key? Good question. Then then. Uh, you're in a bad spot. But <laughs> the good thing is, so these uh, YubiKeys can't be backed up, but what we can do is have multiple YubiKeys. And so you can register two keys so that if you lose one, you have a backup. Or if you use um, a ledger or a Trezor, the seed phrase that you use for backing it up will also recover this type of MFA. Okay, so, so this is the back. strongest type of multi-factor authentication or whatever we're calling this. Yes. This is the best... This yeah. is the premium version. Yeah, yeah. This we is have to wear a necklace with a yeah, USB exactly. key around yeah. our neck. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what about uh, Face ID? Um, face ID is, is okay, but biometrics are just, you know, they, they're a pretty strong um, factor of authentication. But um, like anything, they, they have kind of different types of attacks that can circumvent them. And um, so are you talking about like using like a touch uh, on your laptop or something like that? Sure, yeah, touch your finger or face ID to open your iPhone. Yeah, I think it's reasonable for like day-to-day -day use, but if you're talking about you know crypto, I wouldn't rely on, on those. I think it's better to use like a hardware wallet or like a UB key or a Titan key. Okay. Because so you can keep them separate from the computer. Like your, your touch, it, it's part of like the um, TPM, which is like a secure chip enclave that's built into your device. So you can't keep it separate from your computer. So from a physical point of view, like you can't, you can't separate it. So that, that gives you less flexibility on how you secure access. Oh my um, God. The future is in the hands of the software engineers. Yeah. <laughs> just listening to this, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm just thinking like, where do you buy that key? Can we go to Best Buy? Like, how yeah. does this work? Do you think we're headed to a world where, you know, everyone is going to be carrying around a physical key like that to um, secure themselves? Or is this stuff like just for the most, for people who are really into secure themselves like yourself? Yeah, I think it just, uh, it's all risk-based, right? Like you got to figure out what you're trying to protect and how much it's worth to you. If if you 
if there isn't anything too valuable you're protecting and you don't care about, you know, you don't have crypto or you don't have a lot of sensitive information that you're trying to protect, then you don't have to go as far. Using TOTP will get you most of the way there, right? So like a Google Authenticator app or Authy or something like that. Uh, pretty reasonable. But if you're dealing with crypto, I would recommend using, you can use your hardware wallet for this type of 2FA. So you're ready. If you have a hardware wallet, you can use it for this. Okay. So for anyone listening, can you just map that out? Let's say they're going to buy some, I'm just going to go back to Bitcoin. Let's say they're going to buy some Bitcoin. What would, what would you recommend a hardware wallet? Like, can you just walk somebody through that? They buy some Bitcoin somewhere. How should they secure it in your mind as for like the average person? Yeah, sure. So, um, you get a get a hardware wallet depending on the amount again because if it's a small amount a hardware wallet costs like i think 100 bucks for okay. a gold card for example uh so you might say it's it's not worth it but if if you're protecting a significant enough amount you would buy hardware wallet you would make sure that your seed phrase is backed up you might even make two copies and put one copy here and one so copy uh, there so what's the seed phrase the seed phrase is a, it's a mnemonic seed phrase it's a bitcoin improvement proposal 39 and basically it's a list of 24 words that you feed into your hardware wallet and it can recreate your private key based on that. So it's just a human friendly form of backup. So I guess for anyone listening to this that hasn't been through that process, could we say it's like just a, a like a super duper password that's made up of 24 words? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And and those those words in the background get turned into like a really long cryptographic secret, but it's done deterministically. So anytime you do it, like if, if your ledger explodes or you lose it, you can go and buy a new ledger, put these words into it, and it'll be set up the same as your previous uh, nano ledger. Okay, so if someone's buying any meaningful amount of, of Bitcoin in their lives, they could get a hardware wallet from one of the main manufacturers or, you know, like Trezor or... Yeah, Trezor or, or uh, um, Ledger are usually the go-to. There's Cold Card, which it only does, supports Bitcoin, but it's a really great um, Toronto -based hardware too. wallet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, CoinKite, um, they're great. They have a few really nice, um, including the block lock that I see behind you. Yeah, I love you. the block lock. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. So they make really cool stuff and their their hardware wallet is one of the best. It only supports Bitcoin, but it's it's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so you can get one of these things and it's basically like, a, you know, kind of like what you're wearing around your neck almost. It's like, an, mm -hmm. you know, a separate tool that you're using to secure your 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 online bitcoin yeah so essentially what you're doing is you're using like this family of hardware is called a hardware security module and the idea is that it protects the secret material right that that is used to move bitcoin around or secret material that's used for authentication and why do you want it on one of these devices because right now it's completely offline it's air gapped it's separate from my computer so even my if my computer is compromised it has malware on it the likelihood that it will be able to um, get its hands on on the secret is very low, right? So for a private key that protects, you know, $10,000 worth of Bitcoin, uh, you'd want to go to the length to actually remove it from your system, especially if you use your system for day-to-day -day stuff. You might have your kids use it, install some games, go on God knows what website. Um, the likelihood that your computer is going to be exposed to some sort of malware is a lot higher, right? So this just creates separation from your day-to-day -day machine and really important cryptographic secret material that shouldn't be touching that system. And if you lose this really hardware wallet and you can then take those super duper 
uh, 24 words mm-hmm. and it is it a, it's a standard now so that I could get yeah. even a different company's hardware wallet and put those words in and recreate this hardware wallet key for myself yeah in a lot of cases there's like different um, derivation paths but it's it's pretty widely supported it's a standard uh, protocol like the bip 39 is, is like a, a widely accepted protocol that's used to to do this yeah what I've kind of found fascinating about the evolution of some of this stuff is that I guess you could buy some Bitcoin, you could smash your hardware wallet if you can memorize these words. And I'm not encouraging anybody to do this, but if you could memorize those words, you really kind of in your head can control, um, you know, a monetary thing that's living on the Internet. And it, it's kind of like freeing somewhat that you just kind of like can secure it and it's just yep. memorized. And I'm not encouraging anyone to try to memorize 24 no, words no. because God forbid you don't remember people, those people 24 have, words. People have done that. I know that there, was, yeah. there was a guy, I think his name was Dan Moorhead, uh, hedge fund guy. And I think I was watching a YouTube video and he had a substantial amount of Bitcoin. I think it was millions of dollars worth. Right. And he said for a year or two years, he just had the 24 words for this amount of Bitcoin in his head. Yep. So they call it a brain wallet. There's also yeah. examples. Oh <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah. That's what I, I need to work on. It's I need like to the work least on my brain. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, the risk is like you hit your head and you forget some words. Or oh God, can you like, imagine? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's other like more advanced methods to kind of okay. protect your. Uh, what are those? Words, yeah, yeah, share those with us. Like. Um, so I mean, you could you could simply just take the set of twenty four words and split it into two of twelve, right? And just like put those in different locations. So it's kind of like a Horcrux setup, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can just split it up. You could even do it into four groups, right? And then just store them in different locations. So if someone found your recovery phrase or your they recovery only words, they only have a fraction. Yeah, so that's like one other layer. There's there's more kind of methods, but uh, it's sufficient to just, yeah, even if you just split the key or split the seed phrase into two of 12, that that's already like a pretty good protection layer. Any, okay, so passwords, two-factor authentication. We've talked about using hardware devices in for your own email. You know, you've you've talked about that. Yeah, um, but if you also, put it just on your email, actually, like a security key, that that's already a huge win because your email, like we mentioned earlier, is like a huge single point of failure, right? And also, it will often have a lot of sensitive information. If you're sending a PDF or you know, I don't know, tax returns, or you sent a passport to someone. That information just sitting in your email. So if someone compromised your email, that would get. Inf- can so can you repeat the name of your favorite one that you use, or you would recommend somebody just? I use a YubiKey. Out? YubiKey's a very widely. You used could buy one. that on Am- on Amazon yeah. or from Yubi uh, Yubico is the name of the company. Um, How do you spell that? Uh, y U B I C O. Okay. Yubico. Yeah. So you can buy one of those things. It works with Gmail. Yeah, yeah, and and it works with a, a ton of different services. Um, GitHub uh, is one of them. Most uh, crypto exchanges supported. So anywhere you can use it, um, you should if you already have a key. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the one recommendation is if you're using a Yubi key, you should you should get two just in case you lose it because you'll have issues recovering afterwards if you lose your key. You don't have a okay. backup. So most services allow you to register two keys. So you take one hide it somewhere and then you have your day use the other one yeah. yeah i want to ask you questions about what you do kind of uh in in real world but um a couple more questions can you just talk about vpn and tor a little bit what do people need to know about tor when they hear tor or vpns sure. what's what's that world about yeah so tor is a onion routing uh, network layer that basically um just 
hides the origin of your request. So it's similar to VPN in the sense that it's a privacy protecting um, technology. So there's a lot of, basically the way it works is like if you were to visit a site, um, it would go and bounce between a bunch of different nodes and then eventually it would go to the site and then the, the response from the site would kind of trace back and go back to you. But whoever is on, like the site would have no idea where that request came from. Okay, because right? I've noticed on, on a browser called Brave, yeah. I can open a window in the browser. It says open window with Tor. Right. So that means if I'm visiting a website with Tor, nobody can see where the request is coming from. If they're on their side trying to say, hey, where's this incoming request coming from? Yeah. They don't know that it's Tom coming from Oakville, exactly. Ontario, because with this tour thing, it's kind of jumbled up. So they don't know where I am. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it hides it hides your uh, request from your Internet service provider as well. So like if you don't use a tour or VPN, whatever requests you make, um, your Internet ser service provider will see what your what queries you're sending. Um, so both these technologies are similar. VPN is probably easier to use. You can, there are VPNs that you can just set up and have them turn on automatically when you start your device and you can have it on your phone and on your iPad, on your computer, and they're just kind of in the background. But basically the way they work is they create a tunnel between your computer or device and a server that the VPN provider controls. So the way it works is that instead of you asking the internet service provider basically to route your request you send it to the vpn server and then from there it goes into the internet gets what it, whatever information it needs and then it comes back to their server and then back to you through this encrypted tunnel so in between the vpn server and you is the internet service provider but they don't see anything because there's an encrypted tunnel between you and the vpn server so it's basically just another layer of privacy but you're, you are trusting the vpn provider because they know who you are as a user. Holy shit, right? so, Anton, we can't win here. Yeah, but the, the good thing is a lot of them, like, you know, their whole business is privacy. Like, this is their business. So they try to do their best to preserve their user's privacy and go as far as, like, not recording any logs. So they won't actually be able to retrieve what information, flew, like, flowed through their systems. Now, how well is that implemented? That's a That's a separate question, you know. So, but it's still, I would say on average, using a VPN is a good, good thing to do. Is there any anti-malware or antivirus software you'd recommend? Um, I, I don't know or if Anton's I'd recommend. been talking for, there's water, this is water for you. If you need water, I feel bad. We're just keeping no, no, this guy no, with this questions. Is great. Hey, Anton, good to meet you. Sit down. We got some questions. Grilling. <laughs> no, this is awesome. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Um, yeah. Uh, sorry, what was the question? Antivirus or oh, antivirus. Anti yeah, right. So, um, they can't detect everything, but they can't. By, his, by the way he moved his body right there, I'd say he wants to say they're bullshit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the, the problem is that they can actually be used to, to um, do what's called privilege escalation. So a lot of, a lot of antivirus software is, is designed to have like higher privilege on your system so that it can look kind of under the hood and see what's happening to value it if there's software that's malicious that's running on your system. Um, so just by having it present on your system, malware can use it to piggyback off of its privilege to escalate its own privilege and further compromise your computer. That being said though, Jeez. for the average user, I think it's, it's good to have antivirus uh, or anti-malware software because it will catch a lot of known um, malware. The novel ones, it probably won't, but you know, the non-sophisticated user 
that's maybe not a crypto holder. It's like, you know, my mom's pretty sophisticated, so she's not a good example. But, you know, my grandma, I would put antivirus on her computer, right? Sure. Because she might click on something and it'll defend you from a large category of stuff. But for example, for your secondary computer, if you do get one for just doing crypto related stuff, I would not put an antivirus on that. I would not download or run anything on that computer. I would basically install a browser and your hardware wallet software and that's it, right? Nothing, nothing, nothing more. What are you, that's, there's just so much <laughs> going on in the world right now, I feel like in this space, um, which is great for you. So what are you up to at, like, what are you doing at, how did you get introduced to Ledin? And, you know, we've had Maurizio on here. We've had Connor Eagleson on here. I feel like all of a sudden we are big Ledin support. Not all of a sudden, we are big Ledin supporters. <laughs> uh, but uh, how did you get involved with Ledin? And tell us a little bit about Ledin and just want to kind of quiz you a little sure. bit. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Um, so I've been with Ledin from the very beginning. I was uh, the first software engineer. And actually, the way I met Mauricio and Adam was through a friend who used to work for Adam, one of our co-founders. And he's Croatian, too. His name is Lovro. And um, he introduced us and we actually met for the first time while I was still in Amsterdam. So they were trying to do like a crypto mining business at the time. They hadn't yet decided to like pivot to, to uh, what Ledin is today. Um, but they stopped by and we went to this meetup, like a Bitcoin Wednesday meetup. And that, that was the first time I met them. In Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, yeah. And um, so I kind of became their technical advisor and we would just have conversations just like this about different, you know, security related things or like should we buy the software or build it and any kind of topic that they encountered uh, along the way and trying to figure out how to build Ledin, i was there and would just you know advise them and then eventually um i joined full-time uh the project that i was working on in amsterdam kind of um came to an end and so i hopped on and so yeah for for a good long time i was just developing the platform so i built you know the infrastructure and the front end and the back end um, and that was, that was like for a long while, it was just, for those who don't know what Ledin does, can you just describe briefly? Yeah, sure. So we basically offer a series of, uh, products for digital assets, primarily Bitcoin and USDC. So we allow you to borrow dollars against Bitcoin. So Bitcoin can be used as collateral. We have a savings account. Um, we're working on fiat ramps as well. Right now we're rolling out the ability to go from dollars to crypto on our platform, um, as well as a uh, B2X, which is kind of, it's just a loan in the background, but we noticed a lot of people using our Bitcoin backed loan to borrow dollars to buy more Bitcoin. So B2X kind of short circuits that and you put down Bitcoin, we buy the equivalent amount and then you owe us whatever we paid for that Bitcoin that we bought plus interest. But that's in a nutshell uh, what Ledin does. So it's a, it's like a, yeah, just a digital asset platform that allows you to to do more stuff. Feels with, like a growing Bitcoin. space too. I don't know if you guys are still doing it or considering it or expanding it, but at one point you were thinking of um, allowing real estate to act as collateral and Bitcoin together. Is yeah. that something let in still? Yeah, yeah. We have so we have a Bitcoin backed mortgage, and the reason we came out with that is because it was pretty um, difficult for a lot of our clients to come up with enough Bitcoin to borrow enough dollars to buy a home. So we said, why don't we come up with a product where the home is a part of the collateral? So then you need half as much Bitcoin. So that that is a product that we also um, offer. Yeah. And so somebody could put up the, the house and some Bitcoin and a certain percentage of that combined collateral, you would lend out fiat dollars or Canadian dollars to that person. Yeah. Essentially, or American dollars. Yeah. Essentially, it's, it's like, yeah, you would, let's say you want to buy a million uh, dollar property. Um, you would put down... Um, um, what is it? 
500,000 worth of Bitcoin. Um, we, sorry. Right. Usually you would have to put down $2 million worth of Bitcoin to borrow a million. Sure. But so in it's over collateralized. Yeah, got it. Yeah. But in, in this case, um, you would put down um, half of that. So it would be a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. Oh, plus the house. Plus the million we lend yeah. you to buy the house. And then they both end up being collateral. But the cool thing about that collateral mix is that the house, you know, is less volatile than Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So it actually makes it um, less less prone to um, like margin calls mm-hmm. on, on yeah. that money. And you need much less Bitcoin. So Yeah, it feels like this space is going to continue to evolve. Okay, so you built the platform for Ledin for this. And you handle the security for Ledin? Yeah, so I, I joined my first title was a senior software engineer and security lead. Uh, so I, from the very beginning, I, I got everyone on board with YubiKeys and, and that stuff. And at first they were very, you know, like, why, why are we doing this yeah, stuff? It does a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah I'm, a, I'm the company pain in the ass most of the time. But um, so we spent a lot of time building the platform. And then at some point I realized that we had enough software engineers like taking care of building the platform that it seemed like, somebody needed to look at security more closely and full time. And so I kind of asked, Hey, you know, took the initiative. Can I, can I build out a team around this? And so for the last year and a half, I built, um, a pretty big team information security team, uh, and have been doing that full time. So just putting together a comprehensive, comprehensive information security program that, you know, looks at everything from physical security to vendor risk assessment. So any company that we interact with, we evaluate and see what kind of risk we're exposing ourselves to, application layer security, the infrastructure, HR, like everything you can think of, like constantly just full-time thinking about what are the threats that are coming at Ledin and how can we minimize them? It's weird. I feel like I'm looking at a general. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I never thought about this before, but it's like, you know, a general like of, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago commanding like this army, not to attack, but to defend. Sure. And I feel like you're the modern day version of that. I never know if you've thought of yourself like no, that. No, I, I haven't. It's, I, it's I feel cool. like, yeah. But I feel like that's what you are. You're leading a team. We are is, at war constantly. Like we're getting hammered. Like whatever if you if you put a website up right now, within a minute it would be getting hammered by someone. Like the internet is a very violent place where everyone's constantly trying to like find a little gap to get in, right? So it's like very unforgiving and everyone's getting hammered. That's what I wanted to ask you. What's the incentive between all these, you know, there's obvious incentive when it's people coming after value starting on the internet, whether it's like your online banking or, you know, your crypto asset, but what's the incentive behind all the malware and viruses just out there in general, just all the spam and crap out there. Like, why are people whipping this stuff up and then just unleashing it on the internet? Yeah, great question. So I think the best way to think about that is like, who are these actors that are creating the malware, right? Like, what's their motivation? So on one end of the spectrum, we have what we call script kitties that are just, you know, very non-technical kids. They got their hands on some malware or scripts and they just want to wreak havoc. They just do it for the lulls, for fu- for the fun of it, right? Just to screw with people. It's like teenage shit disturbing. Yeah, it's just like, let's version. let's screw the stuff. Prank up. call. It's the current day prank call. Yeah, yeah, literally. And and like sometimes it's just to prove they can do it. Sometimes it's just to make fun of a big company that takes themselves super seriously. It's like here's a thirteen year old like totally hacking the crap out of you. Uh, so that's like on one end of the spectrum, and then like on the other end of the spectrum is like state funded threat actors that have literally entire research teams that find zero day vulnerabilities, which are just vulnerabilities that haven't been uh, 
documented public yet? or documented. No one's aware they exist, but they're in the wild. And so they'll have entire teams that just look for them. And then they'll have a separate team that goes and actually uses them to compromise companies. And often the motivation here is to obtain intellectual property or state secrets or crypto uh, currency. And so that that's like a much more malicious and dangerous type of attacker. How much is the average person targeted or is it more so specific like politicians, people of power? Yeah, yeah. So so sometimes it's like uh, espionage and like they will target a specific individual and invest a lot of, you know, if it's like a, um, a governor or a politician or something like that, they might have very highly targeted attacks on that individual because they have important intel. But even the average person can fall prey to there are all the all these kind of like shotgun approaches like credential stuffing attacks, right? Easy to automate, easy to compromise a lot of accounts. And then what do you get out of that? You get a bunch of personal information, you might get credit cards, and then you can sell those on the dark net because there, there's a whole economy of selling that type of information. And then others will take that information. For example, if I had a list of all the users of Ledger, uh, I could sell that um, on the dark web because then someone else would buy that and then try to target those individuals. So there's a oh, whole Jesus. economy around this. So the incentive might be to then other. offload the information to someone else yep. who has a bad incentive to. Yep. And then it might be, it might be even as bad as like, you know, someone will just, so there's a list of users on a platform. Then someone else takes over and comes up with credentials that those users use that have been found in other different breaches and then sell that package of information to another person that's actually going to try to steal funds from the accounts, not that they have all the access information. Recently, my Visa card was, you know, I guess once a year, our Visa cards get charges on them where I feel like it's a data breach somewhere. And the most recent one was Air Mexico flights where somebody booked same day, apparently same day flight. I guess what they did is they got the, the visa information, book a flight where someone can use the flight immediately they're on the flight because I'm assuming, you know, if they buy a flight, there's a name attached to this. So I'm always like, yeah. how is this even happening where somebody would buy an airplane ticket with a hacked or stolen visa card information? But yeah. I guess if they're trying to get somebody from one place to another, same day, flight takes off. By the time I'm calling TD Bank or TD is aware of it, this is the flight's already, it's already done. Yeah, yeah, totally. But no, that's, but that's been that. in my, uh, you know, I've just been curious. I'm like, because there's an ID I tied with that, but maybe the ID was also fraudulent or something. Yeah, I mean, you can buy personal information online. Like you could just buy an identity, right? And use that. Great. Anton's leaving here and I just feel like, yeah, we're, we're like <laughs> I basically feel all I'm going to do is, yeah, I got to protect like, ourselves. I, I, I know. Be <laughs> discouraged. Now, now you're equipped. Like the, the main thing is to, to make like, to first figure out what you're trying to protect. Cause like none of this matters unless the first thing you need to figure out is like, what's your risk it, profile? It seems like passwords at a yeah. minimum should be very strong. Yes. Password. You should use a password manager, use strong passwords. Um, Two you, factor authentication, always. but use an authenticator and not like the SMS or yeah. shmi use, shmishi use, or shmishi or whatever. Yeah. 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 Use, yeah. No, no, um, no SMS. Um, try to use TOTP, so Google Authenticator or Authy, or ideally you can use your Nano Ledger or Trezor or a YubiKey. Um, that protocol is called FIDO. Um, phishing you should look out for. So most attacks start with the social engineering attack, right? Someone will try to fool you into clicking a link or giving some information that you shouldn't. So, and lately they've gotten really good. Oh yeah. Sometimes you're like, whoa, like that, like, you know, it's a phishing attack, a text message. We're like, damn, that was, that yeah. one almost got me. That one yeah. was really good. And especially if they target you specifically, that's called like spear phishing. They're really going for you. They'll find out, do research on you and like really tailor the attack to you 
right? To increase the likelihood it works. Um, so some tips on that are just try not to click on links that you don't need to. If you receive an email that has some sort of link that you weren't expecting, especially if it's like an urgent thing, like do this right now, like think twice before you click the link. It's come to the point where I don't click on anything. So I'm like, wow, if I really do OCRA money, because that's been one that's been coming after me, you know, CRA, I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> someone's gonna have to show up on my door because I'm not clicking this link to pay this outstanding, you know, the, the one that was going around for a while, or I don't know if you're getting the voicemail message one too, where like yeah. CRAs, there's an arrest warant. Did you get that one? Yeah, where that. you're getting an arrest warrant oh, yeah, because, yeah. you know, C you have outstanding fines. to. CRA. Oh, I've had that one. Yeah. Yeah. And you're getting text messages. And I'm like, if this actually is CRA, it's bad. I, yeah, I actually think they're going to have to come to my house because I'm not clicking <laughs> on anything. I'm not returning their phone call. I'm not doing anything. Yeah. Or you have to snail mail me. Like I need an envelope in the mail to believe this is real. Yeah, you know? but even then, how, how are you sure? It's I know, Anton, after talking. <laughs> listen, I didn't even get into AI. Did you guys hear that uh, clip that was shared, I think, on the internet a few days ago with, um, it was uh, a deep fake between Joe Rogan talking to Steve Jobs and they were using artificial intelligence oh, no. to make a podcast episode of Steve Jobs, who's no longer alive. And, and Joe Rogan, have you heard that one yet? No, I haven't seen it. Oh my gosh. I got to check that it, out. Like you can tell listening to you're like, okay, it's not perfect yet. But if you extrapolate this out three, five, and 10 years, mm -hmm. it's freaky. It's it, Joe Rogan asking Steve, Job, Steve Jobs questions and Steve Jobs responding. Right. Yeah. And it sounds and looks exactly like that. Yeah. This like, one was an yeah. audio. I don't know if there was oh, a okay, visual, okay. But, but I was like, wow. This is actually one of my really big concerns. Like, it's funny you bring it up. For the last few years, I've been thinking about deep fakes specifically. And the, the real risk will come when we can do it in real time. Because right now, to generate something like that, you do it offline. You need quite a bit of computational resources and it takes takes time it's not it's not real time right but once we have a technology and it'll be within a few years i'm sure where you can show up on a google meet or video chat and look like you know i look like joe rogan and sound like him right I imagine what kind of havoc that'll wreak online because if you're trying to recover an account for example right now how do the recovery systems work a lot of the time you will have a video confirmation call like that's how we do it at Ledin. But what, what good is a video if you can just fake looking like anyone? Th this is like why anyone. I think, you know, the talk of a, 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 the need for a distributed ID that can be authenticated properly. This is why I'm a fan of Bitcoin yeah. versus all the others. Because I think the energy expenditure that is required to update a Bitcoin ledger, to me, is the security force yeah. in that no one can with a lot of the other blockchains that people are talking about could be used for ID and do these other things. To me, it's still a layer of just humans assigning each other the admin control, you know, admin privs on a blockchain and they can do as they please. Where what I, what I really feel passionately about with Bitcoin is that nobody has admin privs. You know, like if you want to update that ledger, you have to expend the energy through proof of work to update the ledger. Totally. And if we can somehow tie that with smart people like yourself through different layers to an identification, I feel much better about that type of system because it's tied to a physical expenditure of physical energy and not just a group of humans who are saying, we are the authenticators of your ID. And that throughout history seems corruptible and goes badly and people kind of abuse it. Yep. Whereas I just want it in a distributed fashion where there's this kind of decentralized layer that everybody can play with, but nobody can control. And somehow that's involved in that type of system. Whereas if you see an AI speaking to you, 
somehow through some abstraction layer tied to the physical reality through something like Bitcoin, I know, oh yeah, that is in fact Joe Rogan talking to me. Yeah. I don't know how we get there. You probably, Anton, have know what I'm talking about more than I know what I'm even saying right now. No, you're saying but, you're saying a lot of good things right now. Yeah, it's it's like we need to we need cryptographically sound ways of verifying someone's identity. And um, Bitcoin is actually you know uses in the background asymmetric cryptography, which is also what's used by YubiKeys. And the idea is that there's a, a public key, which is kind of like your ID. And then the private key that allows you to prove that you're the owner of that public key, right? So in the context of Bitcoin, it allows you to send Bitcoin because you write a message and then you sign it with your private key saying, I want to transfer this amount somewhere else. In the case of a YubiKey, it's similar. You register with your public key and then the server asks you to sign a challenge, like a, just the current time and maybe a, a, a secret. And you again, you're signing it with your private key and proving that it's you. So that, that's like a really powerful way to prove identity. But the thing is, you need to somehow attach who the person is to the public key. And then when, when, you when you're talking about Bitcoin, it's like you don't necessarily want to do that because it's like you want, you want, you you want, want privacy. Non yeah. yeah, but there is something there. And I think asymmetric cryptography is like a really powerful mechanism. It's used um, probably not enough right now but we're definitely trending more towards it. And, and one thing I forgot to say that's really great that uh, Apple has been working on actually is, I forgot that, I think it's passkey or something like that, but they're basically using asymmetric cryptography, using their touch technology to kind of get the same benefits of using a YubiKey. So that's been, that's been coming out. And I think there's no reason not to do this. Phones have TPMs in them that can kind of act the way a YubiKey does. Computers have TPMs, these like secret chips that are kind of like... So how would we use that? It would be very similar to using a YubiKey, except instead of uh, plugging in a YubiKey and tapping it, uh, you would register using the built-in, it's like a built-in YubiKey. In your computer. laptop? Yeah, and then you would just like use the touch, uh, the finger touch. So like Apple is rolling that out right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so that, that will increase the internet security level drastically. Because even though that's in the laptop, it's somehow secured against the rest of the hardware so that no malware can get to it or something like it that? Has, yeah, it has defense mechanisms for sure. Um, and it's it uses a better protocol so that it's it's actually, you can't, it eliminates a whole family of, of, of attacks, like man-in-the-middle attacks that other types of MFA are susceptible to. FIDO-based authentication, just it checks it checks what it's authenticating. So you can't, it's actually not fishable. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one of the magical things about Fido, that it protects you from fishing. Anton, we're going to have to yeah. bug you to come back because I feel like there's a lot to continue to discuss here and you're going to have to save us all. Yeah, I, I, would, I would love to join you. This has been really, really fun. Yeah, I totally appreciate this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think we can share that link to all the resources for how to protect yourselves out yeah. in the show notes. And there's a TLDR, too long, didn't read yep. uh, link within that link that you can click to just shortly kind of summarize it because it is so long. Yeah. But it does there's give you recommendations like strongly recommended for everyone to do this, like the password manager. And then if you really want the advanced security, you can do this. Yep. So it's a really great resource. If someone has the time, I think, you know, you should probably invest a little bit and protect. So where will we put that in the show notes in the of show this notes. episode? Yeah, we can okay. And then Anton, you missed, you mentioned a blog. Is that a link to Anton's blog? No, this is a separate resource, oh. but I, I like the, the blog I started writing um, is the belt and suspenders newsletter that I have on, on Substack. And then also I have my personal website. That's just uh, my last name dot me, L-I-V-A-J-A uh, dot me. 
um, I have the blogs up there as well. So I'm going to start kind of covering some of these topics and because I, I end up repeating myself a, a lot on, on this stuff. So I just want to have like a place where I can kind of like send a person be like, read this. And, and, and don't start of talking. Listen, no, no, no. I don't <laughs> want to tell you about your, your goddamn passwords anymore. No, no, no. I just want to have like a really nice like body of, of like content that someone can go and like dig into and just like, you know, um, so then we have a, a baseline and we can go and go even deeper. Is your Substack newsletter linked off Leviathan.me? Uh, not yet, but not, I'll add that. I'll yeah. Add okay. Okay. Fresh. Cool. So we'll link, we'll link to that. Awesome. And then Anthony will share those in the show notes, the, the, the TLDR that you're talking about? Yeah, the link to the resources. It goes through like email, phone, social media, smart home, just how to protect yourself. Yeah. Oh, wait, yeah, smart home. We never even got in. Oh, oh there's a lot. But I'll, I'll just want to repeat, like, don't get overwhelmed. Just if you're taking small steps to improve your security posture, you should feel good about it. You shouldn't be afraid. Um, just like chip away at it. I feel even like I'm working steps, on it. Yeah, small yeah. steps feel like an exponential benefit somehow. Yeah, yeah, it stacks up because it's all about layering uh, defenses and every little layer that you add that might be a bit of friction for you is a lot of friction for an attacker, mm. right? So it's, think about it that way. Like any, you know, usually security and usability are a bit at odds, but it's definitely, make, it definitely makes the attacker's life much harder. If, you're hard to, if your life is a little bit harder, theirs will be immensely harder i like that so um i didn't ask you a really important question at the beginning of this um born in zagreb Mm -hmm. dinamo fan or hajduk fan you gotta put me in that spot (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know if it was just gonna belt out of your mouth no no it's it's dinamo i mean it has to be i'm a burger you know but um yeah, it's Anthony. This is a big rivalry in the yeah. country. Dinamo and Hajduk. This is this is something sure. you don't want to mess around Take with. Take your word for it. Yeah, yeah. It's a big, <laughs> it's a big. I guess you know what it'd be the equivalent of like Leafs Habs. Yeah. You know, it's Leafs. You're either a Leafs yeah. fan or a Habs fan. You're generally not both. You know, you're yeah. one or the. And it's funny because like I'm kind of caught between the two sides. You are. Yeah. yeah, yeah like yeah, my yeah. family's from the coast. I grew up in the city, so it's like you know, I can I can speak both dialects and and so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pleasure having you here, Anton. Really appreciate this. Um, Like I said, we're just um, fortunate to come uh, across people like yourself, especially it seems like from Ledin, um, who are kind of sharing good information and doing good stuff. And from what, you know, in our humble opinion, what we see out there, we're fans. So please keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. It means so much to me. And like, uh, yeah, I just want to thank you again for having me here. This was really, really fun. Uh, Really great vibe. Really great. You know, what you're doing here is amazing. Um, I, I'm definitely going to be listening to more of your content. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, thanks, Anton. Yeah, yeah. and Anthony, you got to go to more of these concerts to meet uh, people like yeah. Anton. This is working <laughs> this out. Is what comes this out is of working out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's go. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Hopefully, you enjoyed that chat with Anton. You can follow him on Twitter at Anton. Levaya, I'll spell it out, A-N-T-O-N-L-I-V-A-J-A. That's Anton Levaya. We will have that linked in the show notes of this episode, which you can find at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash podcast. So you can follow Anton on Twitter and pick up uh, golden nuggets from him around security. And if you are listening to this and you want more real estate information, you can find almost everything we have to offer at rockstarinnercircle.com. So that's copies of our books, reports, videos, more podcast episodes. It's all there at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.